Lewis said that reading The Everlasting Man by Chesterton was a big contribution to his conversion. Hmm. And he said uh, a young atheist can't be too careful about the books he picks up, right? <laughs> Welcome to the Renovare podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and today we get the opportunity to explore G.K. Chesterton's classic book, Orthodoxy, with my friend Robert Moore Jumanville. Robert's the author of Jogging with G.K. Chesterton, 65 Earth-Shattering Expeditions. Robert also teaches theology at a private high school in Jackson, Michigan. I spoke with Robert from his home in Michigan. What do you like about Chesterton? I love his wit and his humility. And I think those go together. You were mentioning humility and uh, your dad's dad's uh, writing a book on humility. Uh, early on, I noticed that as a theme that humor and humility go together, that you have to be able to sort of laugh at yourself a little bit. And to be human, the hummus, right? Hummus is like earth. There's there's something about returning back to the earth and just being earthy. So like when he says angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, the devil fell by force of gravity. And I always think of like sort of Richard Nixon, how 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 serious he, he took himself, <laughs> right? And, and I think of that like, that's probably like the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees probably uh, talk like Peter Lorre. They, they probably talk like this and, and they have long fingernails and, they, <laughs> and they, they say, oh no, look at him. He's breaking the Sabbath quick. Go get him. You know, I mean, and, and religion gets a bad name because people end up taking themselves too seriously. I know religion ought to be taken seriously, but we ought not to be taken seriously. We ought not right. to take ourselves seriously, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so here's a guy, I mean, intellectually, you guys are brilliant, right? Yeah, right. And he was celebrated in his day. Yes. His today. But yet there was a lot of humility in the yeah. character. There's this line that uh, I, I forget where she says this. It must have been in a tribute to Chesterton. But Dorothy Sayers, right, friend of um, Lewis's and and um, kind of like a, an, a little bit outsider of, of the Inklings. Uh, there were no female inklings, unfortunately, at that time, but she would have been. Uh, and a, a mystery writer like Chesterton, you know, Chesterton did Father Brown, and she 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 wrote mysteries also. Um, they had a lot in common. She attributed her conversion to Chesterton. Really? And she, yeah. And she said that um, she called him a beneficent bomb, a life-giving bomb. He was like a, he, an explosion, a beneficent bomb. And she said uh, that when she read orthodoxy uh it it blew a lot of bad stained glass out of the church windows <laughs> <laughs> that had been stifling her generation and allowed all this air to come in and that was actually my experience of orthodoxy i i was uh part of a protestant uh evangelical denomination uh when i was in seminary back in the East Coast. And it, it was it was a kind of an anti-intellectual, like uh, evangelism was everything. And so you shouldn't study and theology took you astray from the things that God really wanted you to do. 
it was didn't, really didn't you go to Princeton? I did, yeah, but but this was like the church that I was involved, you know, like the the denomination, um, not uh, not the seminary, yeah. And so I was studying at Princeton and felt like um, what what they wanted wasn't what how I was developing. But I read Orthodoxy, and and I and I had this ex- I had this experience of feeling such relief, like what Sayers said, you know. Uh, um, now all of a sudden, I could say what I believed in, instead of saying, no, I don't believe that, you know, or, you know, like always having to say like, well, that's not my brand of faith. I don't feel comfortable um, with this. Let's just say with this kind of worship, or I don't feel comfortable um, just saying that the only, uh, the only thing for Christians to do is missions, you know, whatever it, whatever it was, it's like, I was, I was defining myself. I'm not this, I'm not this. And, and finally, after, you know, when I read Orthodoxy, it was like, Oh, I can start saying what I do believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's substantive and very positive, I think, too. Mm-hmm. How would you describe orthodoxy to someone? First of all, it's a super dense book. Uh, people have the experience of starting it multiple times and not finishing it, right? <laughs> um, and and it's it, some of it is because they lose the train of where he's going, kind of the argument. Um, some of it is because it's just so tightly packed with gems, you know, you could pick up any two pages and there are just quotable quotes. I mean, we could, we should read some together. Um, you get, uh, overwhelmed by this quote and you read it like three times and then you don't know what, you don't know where you've been kind of, you know, so I've taught it before quite a bit. And oftentimes what I'll do is just have people start with, Ethics of Elfland chapter and just treat that like a standalone essay almost, you know, and just say, okay, let's just, let's just talk about this in focus. And I do think the book can be read that way. It can be read sort of as separate essays mm-hmm. and, uh, and like, just try to get what you can out of each, mm-hmm. each essay. But um, yeah, so I, the first thing I would say about the book is it's like, it's, it's very, very dense. I had this experience and after, you know, as a, involved with the American Chesterton Society for years and years and years. And I'd been, I'd been hanging out with these guys, um, going to their conference for probably 15 years more. And when I realized that, uh, I, th- I think this is probably, probably accurate, is that Chesterton wrote orthodoxy and that everything he wrote before and everything he wrote after is something like, commentary on orthodoxy <laughs> it's <laughs> it something like treated. this was his, his, his book yeah and it's like i don't know what the right metaphor would be uh it would be like this this super condensed you know like this uh i don't know if you're thinking of a a food you know that's like where it's condensed orange juice or something like that you know and mm-hmm. it's like you got to add a whole bunch of uh something to it to make it tolerable because it's just so so tightly packed in there Help me out here because it, it's I'm struggling with dense a little because yeah. it's not boring. No, I, I mean, it, it, and it's a laugh out loud kind of book, but you got to go slow to right. You right. got to kind of take your time. But the humor is just yes. the insights. It's just littered with yes goodness if you if you're willing to go slow. I guess so. no, and that's it. That's it. I think I think most people read it like they they would read a normal book. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're, I think that it's, it, it, it's almost a, a spiritual 
uh, work to read it. Cause sure. I think that you are, you are going through it uh, and trying to understand and then in some sense respond, whether you agree at these, you know, with these different uh, points or not, he does this interesting thing. One of the ways that I would characterize this too, is as it's the kind of theology that he's doing. And I would caricature it or uh, characterize it as, as anthropological theology. So uh, kind of almost in an existential way. So like Augustine or Pascal, he starts with the human condition. He starts with the fact of, of uh, what it means to be human, like say the fall is really important to him. Um, he, what human nature is like. The very beginning of the book, I think is, is instructive. He's got this parable. Uh, and so the, the chapter one is uh, introduction in defense of everything else. He, he starts out by saying, imagine a yachtsman who is trying to sail to this new land to plant the, the British flag in this new land. And he goes out and he's, he sails and he comes back onto the shore and plants the flag and finds out that he's at home, <laughs> basically, that he is, um, what does he say here? He says, uh, the man who landed armed to the teeth and talking by signs, <laughs> like he had to, you know, he was talking to some native that didn't understand him, to plant the British flag on that barbaric temple, which turned out to be the pavilion at Brighton. And, <laughs> and, and so he says, he says, you think that, that he felt like a fool, but he didn't. He actually, he had all the adventure of going out and all the security of coming home. And so I think what, uh, I don't know if you, if you've heard this, but like the existentialists will say that human beings vacillate between boredom and anxiety. So like you get too anxious and you stay home to find that security. And then you start getting bored and you want an adventure and then you go out, you know, it's so it's like, we're always trying to balance that tension out and he says that that's that's basically what he's experiencing in this is that he sets out as a young man. So let's see, 1908 is when this is written, and he's say okay, so he's just in his early 30s. He sets out to like invent his own religion, okay. and and just kind of from from reason and experience, uh, like uh, that's part of the ethics of Elfland chapter. He's saying like okay. What what works for me? What what do I know is true? It's what I learned in in fairy tales, and so that you know he goes he goes into this uh, this essay this long uh, explanation of why fairy tales have gotten it right. You know what 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 it, it, and um, but then he says once I put the final final touches on this, I found out that it was historic Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> so he said I'm I'm like that man who went to go find this new country and actually discovered my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a theme in Chesterton. Did you ever read Man Alive? No. Mm -mm. Man Alive was an early novel and it's about a guy who he's basically going around the world in order to come back home so he can appreciate home. So it's, it's like this sense of you, the, the, the danger in life is boredom. The danger in life is that we live the unexamined life that we're, we live the lobotomized life. Uh, and, and so he, 
you know, this guy, innocent Smith goes out and he, he like, he's always proposing to his wife. He's, he's trying to, he breaks into his own house from like the upstairs so that he can, he can actually enjoy it as, as though it's somebody else's house. Like, like see it for the first time, mm-hmm. like by coming down the chimney or something. And, and so there is this sense um, often in Chesterton of this, having to sort of shock yourself awake as we fall asleep spiritually. All right, I'm I'm pushing things a little here, but I'm just really curious to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little like my connection with Churchill. For some reason I hear Kurt Vonnegut in Chesterton. Is am I just completely off? Well, it's been a while since I've read Vonnegut. Uh, I read him in high school and I don't know that I've actually gone back to to reading him since. Um, and so what, what, what is it about Vonnegut? Um, the satire, it's the unexpected, it's the Chesterton surprises me. Yes. You know, it has this like really wacky, weird way around and then, and then yes. it's beautiful. Like it kind of. Yes. There's a book by Alison Milbank, uh, Chesterton and Tolkien as theologians, makes that point that Chesterton and Tolkien both try to make something seem uh, like it's absurd so that you can actually see that it's not, you know what I mean? Like, so that they'll push things to this point where like you're seeing a monster and then you realize, Oh no, that's my brother, you know, (laughs) whatever, Uh, you know, it's this, uh, the way of um, looking at the grotesque as a way towards finding order and beauty. So it's like when you look at things that are disordered, that means that things, there is an order somehow. It's like, it brings you back to that. And part of the the literary tactic of that is surprise, what you were saying. So, yeah. It's brilliant. I mean, it's this like masterful artistry. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what's in front of us. Right. One of the things I think is probably important to understand is just that uh, as you're reading it, names will come up that are, are current because he was a journalist primarily. And so he's writing, he's writing for his day. And a lot of those things you can just pass by. I think you don't have to know exactly who Blatchford was. He mentions Hanwell. That's the, the insane asylum uh, is, is in chapter two, I think. Uh, but you, you don't need uh, a, a, uh, an annotated orthodoxy to, you know, just, you can just get it from context, I think, but I think he's addressing, uh, he's addressing this religion that is very much part of like 1908. It's, it's really interesting because he wants to argue against an optimism, you know, that, that says human beings are just naturally progressing. And, you know, because, because you've got uh, Darwinian thought coming in 19th century, 1800s, and then uh, people in religion just experiencing that medicine is, is improving, things are getting better, transportation. And this is all pre-World War One, right? So it's, it's before this, this liberal optimism is chastened by World War One. And so he's, he's trying to say like, you, this is too naive. It's not, it doesn't give us an accurate picture of what human beings are like. There's this wonderful quote by H. Richard Niebuhr in his book, um, The Kingdom of God in America. He says that liberalism amounts to this, a God without wrath 
brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. <laughs> and it's like, it's sort of like uh, cultural Christianity or club med Christianity or something. <laughs> uh, and, and so he wants, on the one hand, he wants to negate that. But on the other hand, he also wants to negate the pessimism of Nietzsche, uh -huh. you know, who, who's, who's saying that life basically is, uh, is a is a great hoax and a joke and there's you know god is dead and so there's like a cultural commentary that has a lot of relevance for today right and and i think he is he's trying to get at you know what is uh what is the essence of orthodoxy kind of in a sense it's not so much that he gives us dogmas but he's saying like uh what what is orthodoxy uh, what what is the experience of you know following orthodoxy like if you're gonna if you're gonna follow orthodoxy then there are these things like say tradition right he's got these great quotes like uh, tradition is the democracy of the dead Do you, have you heard that line <laughs> yeah that's yeah 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 it's like he says you know it's like uh it, it just happens to um give the vote to those ancestors of ours who have the unfortunate fact of not being alive right now. <laughs> we include them, you know, in, in the conversation. Democracy of the dead. Tradition. Yeah. That's, good. That's just an affirmation of tradition, right? He, so number of places he'll say like, well, people will say like, well, that doctrine was for back then, you know, it's an old, that's because, and, and he says, well, you don't, you don't change doctrines. Like, there's a different doctrine for Tuesday, you know, or, or at 12 PM, you know, the doctrine changes or something like that. And so when we're reforming something, we have to know what's the, the end game. What is it that we're trying to reform it towards? Cause you can't keep on changing what you want to reform it towards. You know, mm -hmm. you have to have, that's gotta be stable. What are your, your fundamental axioms that, that where your starting point is too? I think those are, are related. So like you have to, he said, don't try to liberate a triangle from its three sides because mm -hmm. you'll, you'll ruin the triangle. You know? It's no longer a triangle. Yeah. You can't take, you can't take the stripes off the tiger kind of thing. It's right. got to, you know, right. what is there that is permanent you know, again, it's like uh, if a doctrine is a doctrine, then it's it's good for all time rather than, you know. Right, right. Yeah. What are a couple, one or two you know, significant impacts you'd say Chesterton's had on your life? And wonder if you could tie it in and talk a little bit about uh, the book you wrote. Yes. Chesterton, as I said before, in in when I was in seminary, gave me a sense of being able to hold on to an orthodoxy um, so that I could call myself a, a conservative, but in a way that I didn't feel embarrassed about that. You reference a theologically conservative, like an orthodox. Yes, yes. Like um, I, I suspect in some way, I remember Brian McLaren's book, Generous Orthodoxy, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, I remember um, someone saying that uh, an evangelical is just a fundamentalist with good manners. <laughs> and, and I think there's, there's a bit of a truth in, the, in, in that, in the sense that fundamentalists generally in the culture, as you, as you study them historically, they're quite pugnacious. They're quite combative. They're quite, they're ornery, you know, and, and that, that's okay. Um, but evangelicals wanted to, they didn't want to state things quite so, 
drastically. You know, they didn't want to they didn't want to be perceived as morons or as, you know, sort of intellectual uh, simpletons or something like that. And so they tried they tried to make things, you know, so I think Chesterton's orthodoxy, it's robust and it's intellectually uh, challenging and, and, and fulfilling so that it, it feels like you can you can say, yeah, this is, I can really stand for this. And this can represent, you know, something really significant about my faith. So I think that's, that's an important piece. Um, I think too, the point of the humor and humility, the, the, the point of not just what Chesterton says, but kind of like how he says it and how he brings himself in, into the, the whole discussion. Like he's not, just being objective about somebody else, like here's what you need to do, but he makes himself part of this. You know, it's, it's part of his search. Implicates himself. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that makes me trust him more. I think that the influence that he had on Dorothy Sayers, the influence that he had on Lewis, right? Lewis said that reading The Everlasting Man by Chesterton was a big contribution to his conversion. Hmm. And he said, a young atheist can't be too careful about the books he picks up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, he's influenced me in that way, too, that um, reading Orthodoxy then makes me want to read other, other things by Chesterton. He writes on everything. So if you look at the illustrated London news, it's about, I don't know what, 15 volumes, 10, 10 to 15 volumes in the Ignatius Press collected works. And he writes just like literally on anything, on soap, on cheese, uh, on Mormons, on, you know, World War One. It just, he just, and so it's like, there's nothing that he feels like is beyond the pale. And, and it's, and he, he's interpreting all of it through the lens of traditional Christianity. He, he's able to, to comment on just about everything and make it interesting because he knows where he's starting from. You know, he knows who he is. He, he's got his, his identity is, is grounded uh, in, in historic faith. I think, too, that he's a great proponent of, I don't know to say, boundaries. It's, a, it's always a temptation to want to undo the boundaries in, in the next generation. Uh, so like, I think in, in the history of religion, if you look at, like, say, the Puritans and how very devout and earnest, maybe too much, and then the next generation comes along and they loosen things up a little bit. And then it just it gets looser and looser, you know, just uh, and, and pretty soon you don't have a sense of the third generation that they know why they believe what they believe or, or you know, that, why do we do this? Uh, we, I don't, you know, it hasn't gotten translated down. And uh, Chesterton said uh, the essence of every picture is the frame. He said the, the walls of the church are like the walls of a playground in, in a sense that when you, when you put up fences on a playground, all the kids right? Just feel like they can use all of that space and play and it becomes freeing for them. He says, if you take the fence away, they all bundle up in the middle, (laughs) you know, because it's, it feels like there's, there's no boundaries. There's no safety. There's no security place there. Boundaries give you an expanse to play. Yes. Yes. How do you think Chesterton would like to be remembered? As a defender of the faith, I suppose. Uh, And and as someone who's uh, not 
trying to do something new in, in, in a sense of be novel, be known for his creativity, and, and even in that sense, his, his wit, but more to make what is universally or eternally true available, you know, again, for people. Is this what Lewis did too, right? I mean, in the sense that the modernity was causing a cloudiness in our eyes, and we couldn't see God anymore, and we saw things more materially than spiritually. And to be, try to give us a new set of glasses that would say, like, maybe there's wardrobes, you know, where where there's exciting adventures. And Lewis is another another case, I think. I think that that Chesterton would want to be remembered as somebody who preserved the faith. I guess. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Can you tell us a little about your book? I remember the advice that said you should write about something that you're familiar with <laughs> try to be an expert uh, on something that you don't know anything about. So I thought, well, the only thing that I actually know very much about is the trail that I jog on. I'd been jogging at that point 20 years or something like that, you know, and I thought so I can just write about jogging and how I see Chestertonian themes through, you know, and, and some of it I would, I would jog, up in Breckenridge, you know, I would jog in Prague when I was there on a, a cross-cultural trip. I, you know, so it's jogging different places uh, around the world and, and different trails and different circumstances. And so I just started to write these short essays, um, jogging with GK, and then ended up putting those into a, a book later. <laughs> <laughs> it, with great art, the cover of it. Uh, yeah. So, and um, so Brian Shaw did the pen and ink sketches that I wished I could have done because I wanted to be an artist uh, in college. Uh, but yeah, he, he, that's a, that's the best part of the book, really. <laughs> His artwork, it is. <laughs> so am I remembering that when you sign your credit card, you draw a little dinosaur for your signature? Is this... <laughs> Oh, I, yeah. Well, so like when we would get coffee, right. At, at yeah. sacred grounds, I try to just draw something like I try to draw Santa Claus during Christmas, you know, or draw a dragon or something. Uh, you yeah. ever get called out? They were like, no, uh, yeah, never, no, 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 no. People, people love it. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a while though. You know, it's like, it's you, the, the best time to do it is when someone's making you a latte or something. Oh, they, then you got time to you do got it. time to do it. You know, then it. you can turn it around and show it to them. I have this sense that Chesterton would approve. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, wonderful to, to be with you, Nate. Again, that was Robert Moore Jumanville. His book is titled Jogging with G.K. Chesterton, 65 Earth-Shattering Expeditions. You should see the cover art on this one. I invite you to explore Chesterton's work, Orthodoxy, with us in this season of the Renovare Book Club. You can find out more information on our website, renovare.org. I'm Nathan Foster. You've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We're grateful for all of you who help make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website at renovare.org. 
This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>